Let us pray together for God's anointing and power to fall upon Mike as he shares the good news of Christ Jesus with us on this Sunday. Heavenly Father, we beseech thee, send thy Holy Spirit to Michael to anoint him, his heart and his tongue, to share the good news of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Guide and direct his thoughts, his words, and his heart as he shares on this particular topic within the worship of thy church. And we pray thee, O God, to open our hearts to thy word spoken through him, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Deacon Susie's husband, so I do what she tells me. And, it, and just in case you see her moving around, she has three signs. Sign one is louder. Sign two is slower. Sign three is shut up. <laughs> so you can tell. If they, but uh, it's a privilege to be able to, to speak this morning, uh, especially uh, given some of our history. So I'd like to start, we first came to Holy Trinity ten, almost 10 years ago, very shortly after Father Michael arrived over in the house on Union Street. And I still remember that first Sunday because Monica took the tea kettle, filled it up, put it on there to have tea. And we were in that little back kitchen and Lynn was there and, and, and on that very first day we felt we were home. And it was uh, powerful and extraordinary. And for 10 years, we've been on a glorious pilgrimage with the most spectacular group of Christians I could ever imagine. 10 years. And I wouldn't give up a moment of it. But nothing in that 10 years has prepared me for what we have experienced this spring and summer. Because uh, what I believe we are experiencing is a miracle. It's an unfolding miracle. The fact that we are here this morning able to worship God with this extraordinary expanded group of Christians, to hear the word, share the Eucharist, the fact that we are able to do that, given the thousand and one reasons why it shouldn't have happened, is a miracle. What God has done with the little that we had is miraculous. Would you raise your hand if you see it that way? Yeah, I thought so. I'm not the only one. Um, I'm going to come back to what I think the nature of that miracle is and how it relates to financial worship a little later in my presentation, because my assignment is to kick off our financial worship campaign this year. And the simplest way to do that uh, is to explain the difference between the traditional stewardship and financial worship. Now, I can't speak for all churches, but in the 30 or 40 years that I've been involved in stewardship in the Episcopal Church, there's a big difference between the two. And here's what it is. Why do you give money to God through the church in a stewardship model? Basically to meet the budget. Keep the lights on, pay the priests, you know, um, do all the things that you have to do. And the reason that you know that's what it is, for those of you that have been through, and we have a lot of experience here, those of you that have been through a lot of stewardship discussions, the reason that you know that that's what the purpose is, is that's all we talk about. We have pie charts for expenses, pie charts for revenue, P&L, okay? We have shortfalls. We have all sorts of discussions of the sorts of things that you would talk about if the church was primarily a small business. And that's what you do in a stewardship model. A financial worship model, which we embrace here and we've worked on, this is our fourth year, 
and I think it has a lot to do with the miracle that we're experiencing. A financial worship model is quite different. The reason that you give money to, the church, to God through the church is to respond to the Great Commandment. The budget is secondary. Uh, we heard the Great Commandment this morning. You know, it's there three weeks out of four at least in the summary of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And Father Michael always adds, with all thy mind, from Deuteronomy. Now that, uh, if you look in the citation in the liturgy, that's from Matthew 22. And the setting in which that commandment is given, Jesus is being challenged again by the Pharisees, and he responds with a great commandment. Now can you imagine Jesus saying, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then now, for all of you Pharisees listening here, that doesn't include your money. You can do whatever you want with your money. I know you have pressures, and I don't want to be overly harsh on you Pharisees. <laughs> and it really doesn't read like that, does it? Not for them and not for us. Uh, the great commandment calls us to respond to God with the totality, the totality of who we are and what we represent, and it includes everything about us. Now, those are the two models. You give money to support the budget. You give money to respond to the great commandment. Now, which of the two is more biblical? You don't even have to, you know, that's essentially rhetorical, but we can have a little fun with it. Uh, have you ever come across the parable of the pie chart? How about Jesus' discourse to the parish council on how to close a budget deficit? I haven't either. I haven't either. On the other hand, Jesus in the Gospels discusses money and how to live our lives in, with money in relation to God more than any other subject except the kingdom of heaven. Why would that be? Because it's important to get it right. Uh, and I'm going to give, I'll give three quick examples. The third one is the one that bears on the miracle. But I just want to illustrate how lessons about how we are supposed to live with money are hidden just about everywhere in the Gospels. First is a very familiar one. The, the climax of the prodigal son has got to be one of the most hopeful passages in Scripture. You just can't do any better than that. You know, the son is utterly screwed up, okay? He is, he is returning, and God in the person of the father runs to meet him, okay? And the reason why that's so powerful for us is we screw up too, you know, every one of us wants that hope that if we just turn in the right direction and face God, God will come to meet us. It doesn't get any better than that. But there are two powerful lessons about money hidden in there that we rush by on our way to the climax where we all get to feel good about the hope. The first lesson, which you can tell from the Father's language, here's what the Father actually says right there at the end. The father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He doesn't say that the son was away visiting. <laughs> he doesn't say that the son, uh, you know, was taking a semester abroad. He, he says the son was dead. Now, how did he become dead? Well, he asked for his inheritance, a grievous sin. He turned it into money, and he used the money to separate himself from God. And it, the process was exactly what Father Michael describes for us routinely. If God is life and you face toward God, you live. 
If you turn the other way, you're, face, you're, you're moving toward death. In the same way that you pull a green leaf off a tree and the leaf dries up and blows away, that's what happens when you separate yourself from God. And the instrument of the separation was what? Money. The second lesson that's hidden in there is in a verse and a half. That's one of the things about the gospel's discussions of money. They are so tight that you have to really, really be looking for them or you'll miss them. Okay, the verse is, and, and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living, and when he had spent everything. Ten words, twelve words. Okay. The lesson is how addictive power over money can be. He had the opportunity to turn and face God at any point in that journey. He could have spent half the money. Man, this isn't going well, and turned back. He could have spent three quarters and done it. He could have spent 100%. And even when he'd spent every last dime, he couldn't turn in, the, in, in God's direction. What happened then? He had to descend to the pigs. So it is so addictive, power over money, that even after the money's all gone, we still can't figure out what direction to face. Two or three verses. Okay. So while I love the hope, and I feel it too, there are lessons in there are potent. All right, now here's a quick one from the Passion Gospel. Um, we always identify ourselves in the Passion Gospel with the crowd, which is appropriate. So Pilate says, what should I do with this man Jesus? And what do we say? Crucify him. We don't so often identify with Judas. In, uh, in Matthew, which is the, the source, I'm, uh, Jesus is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Mark and Luke, it's for money and no amount is given, and John doesn't comment on the money. Other than that, we're given no reason. We are given no reason. The money wasn't necessary. The chief complaint that the, that the priests and scribes had was that Jesus was upending the religious order. He was throwing people out of temples. He was healing on the Sabbath. He was, uh, he was objecting to their authority. He was claiming authority. For, it was, it was a religious, essentially a religious dispute, and you didn't need to have money change hands to betray him. All you had to do was go in and say, I know what your problem is with Jesus. I'll point him out to you and you take care of it. Jesus was betrayed for money. And that's a scary thought. <clears throat> but the one I want you to really think about because it's so cool in relation to the miracle that we're experiencing is the parable of the talents. Now, what's a talent? That's another reason that we have trouble with the Gospels uh, talking about money because the units of measurement are very strange to us. Um, a talent is 75 pounds of gold. Uh, in the ancient world, it was equivalent to 20 years of wages for a laborer. In modern terms, it's $600,000. Woo! First lesson is even the least of us is given gifts by God that are a big deal in God's eyes. Okay, so the first servant. Now, the other thing to notice in the beginning of this that really should get your attention is this is one of the kingdom of heaven is like this parables. That's how it begins. Okay, then uh, God in the person of the master gives each of the servants a certain amount of gold. He doesn't really give good instructions. <laughs> you know, it's not like when I used to get these things to assemble for the kids, and I'm not good at assembling these things, and I get the instructions. The instructions were bad. There are not much in the way of instructions in there. He just, he gives the first servant five talents, $3 million. 
Second servant, $1.2 million. Third servant, one talent, the one we're going to focus on, that's still $600,000. The first two servants generate a significant return, you know, five and two. And note the proportionality. When God is speaking to us about money, it's always proportional. You know, we are not expected to be Bill Gates, but we are expected to be us. We are not expected to do what Warren Buffett can do. We are expected to do what we can do. All right, so what's the third servant's problem? The third servant is, is uh, frozen by fear, buries, buries the talent, and does nothing with it to generate a return for God. Okay, I think three or four years ago, we were pretty close to the third servant at Holy Trinity. I wouldn't say we had buried our talent. We probably had the whole dog, though, <laughs> and we're standing there looking at each other, and we had a budget deficit that scared us, we talked a lot about the budget deficit. We couldn't quite figure out how to do something to break out of the complacent place that we were in. Um, and, and, this, the, and, and that's the situation that, and what happened. Now that's the interesting part. How did we break out of that? And it's across the street. We rented the chapel. We didn't have that money in the budget. And that scared us even more. We rented the chapel for a year. We'd already been coming over to this neighborhood. Father Michael was deeply committed to being over here, and we rented that chapel over and above the budget, and we took chance. Two and a half years later, we're here. Now, this third servant didn't manage to break out of it, but we can. Okay, so what's the cumulative message of, of, of just those passages? You can separate yourself from God or move closer to God using money. You can become addicted to money, or you can give up a proportionality of your money to God, and God will respond to you. It's possible to betray God with money, and I hope we don't do it. And finally, God expects a return from what he has given us. Now, here's the closing lines. Here's... here's of that parable. For to everyone who has, because what happened to the, to the third servant? They took his talent away and gave it to one of the others. For everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. Everyone who has what? The faith to move forward and do something with what God has entrusted. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And there are churches that dry up and blow away, and we're not going to be one of them. And, and what we have here today is the evidence of that. What an extraordinary miracle. So there are the two models. Uh, stewardship, where you're, you're basically looking at, I'll exaggerate because it's fun. Uh, you're basically looking at giving money to the church, you know, like dues, you know, like sharing the utility bill, like uh, what's my portion of what we have to do. It's necessary to do those things, but not first, because we are not a small business. We are the church of God. Okay, and, and what we are first called to do okay, is, is build upon what God has, has done for us and respond to God and create a fire for God, which we are doing here out into the community. So the, the idea um, of a stewardship model limits us. The idea of a financial worship model empowers you. Uh, it should be part of our entire response to God. Now, how do you go about doing that? 
Well, there, there are three practical steps, and I'm only going to talk about one of them a little bit, but they basically are you pledge, you tithe, and if you can't tithe, you increase your pledge, and the third one I'm going to come back to is joy. Um, let me jump to joy for just a second. You know, how many of you remember the Hallmark Hall of Fame? Yeah, I, I like this. See, people have got my era here. You know, uh, in a lot of churches, the collection is very much like in the Hallmark Hall of Fame, where the plot is moving on, the plot is moving along, this solemn voice says, and now a word from our sponsor. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the central plot. It's, it's kind of a, an interruption, uh, and it doesn't have any, any meaning in terms of what's going on. In many churches, in my view, that's what the collection is. It's not part of the worship. It's, not, it, it's, it's an interlude between the service of the Word and the service of the Eucharist, and there's no particular theological significance to it. There's no joy. There's no power. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own way given me. And that's the end of it. So in, in my life, uh, you know, I'm, 70% of my life is denominated in money. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. A little passing, uh, you know, 15 seconds. Oh, my word. Okay, so I'm going to come back to joy on that one. Now let's talk about pledging, because the other misunderstanding about in, in many, many churches about pledging is what are you doing? Well, in the one model, um, okay, I'm signing up to do my bit. In the other model, what you're doing when you pledge is you are standing up with the community promising to worship God over the next year with a significant portion of your financial resources. It's an entirely different thing. Just as every person in the pews matters, okay, and Father Michael talks about that a lot, every pledge matters. It has nothing to do with amount. It has to do with making a statement to the community before God that I am going to be in the midst of them and I'm going to worship too. Okay, and, and it makes a big difference. That collection plate should be full of white envelopes. They all look the same. Okay, some of them have a lot of money in them, some of them don't have, but it's the act of pledging that starts you on financial worship. We have many spiritual disciplines in the church. Um, you know, if you want to learn uh, how, to, how to study the Bible, start reading it. If you want to learn how to pray, pray. If you want to learn what goes on in church, come to church. If you want to learn financial worship, pledge. Okay, then how much do I pledge? Entirely separate decisions. How much you pledge depends on your circumstances. The talent's parable, it's all proportional. Every, every mention is proportional, and you have to decide what a response to the great commandment is for you. And, and if, it's, if it's hard the first time, increase it the second time. Let me give you a fact about our church that uh, absolutely makes me jump up and down with pride. Last year, we had almost one-third of our pledges increase. I've never seen that in 40 years. Uh, and at the annual meeting, when we knew we had a chance, when we knew we had a chance to come to this church, more pledges increased. Okay, then when we knew we had a chance at the, to, to raise the down payment to buy this church, the down payment came in. And then after that, God poured all sorts of other resources in. Oh, my word. This is a miracle. But it begins with, because don't forget the, in the prodigal, God did not force him to turn around. God won't force us either. We could have sat over there forever, and if we dry up and blow away, God will be very sad, but that's how it happens. God will not force us. 
God will respond if we can turn in the right direction. So, so finally on joy, uh, if you would help me uh, demonstrate the joy that we have in this miracle, uh, and what I had in mind, which will get me to amen so that she doesn't have to say shut up, uh, is let's use the acclamation that Father Michael uses around most of his sermons. And I would love to hear it kind of thunder out as an expression of the fact that we do really regard this as a miracle. Would you help? You know, glory be to God who's given us salvation in Son Jesus Christ. Remember that one? <laughs> okay. Uh, please join me. Glory to God who has given his salvation in his Son Jesus Christ. Glory to God forever and ever. Amen.